and we pray. We pray for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. With our eyes, we see words on a page. Sometimes it means nothing, and it would mean nothing apart from the agency and work of the Spirit of God. We are so dependent upon you today. And we pray that you would do something unexpected. Each of us has things we would expect would happen in a sermon, and I myself have expectations about what we might talk about. But Lord, would you do something that's unexpected? We open up our lives and our hearts before you. We don't presume to know. We wait to hear from your word what you have to say. And we pray that we would have ears to hear. And then that it would not just be the collection of information, but that it would be something more profound and dynamic, even something that gets to our heart and changes our lives. That's really our desire. We look to you and we pray that you would do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as has been alluded to, Joshua was saying this morning, it's been kind of a tough week. We've heard some bad news. That's hard. Shootings across the United States, even very early this morning, I guess in Ohio. We can't make sense of it. We don't understand what's going on. Some of us also were aware of... uh, Some bad news from a role model, a person who was a role model to many, many, probably many of us, who has said, no, I wouldn't even any longer classify myself as a Christian. We we hear about that, and we, we look at that, we say, what could this possibly mean? I don't get it. These things hurt us. But today, I hope I can impress upon you some good news. Really want to impress upon you some very, very good news. This is something which is true and it has been true for thousands of years. It will continue to be true unless the Lord comes back sooner than we expect. It will continue to be true after I'm gone from the scene and after you're gone from the scene. It's something that God is doing. That is that Jesus is building his church. He is. Jesus, when he was on earth, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. My goodness, the gates of hell have been pressing against it. Recently, and in so many ways, down through the years and down through the centuries, the gates of hell have been pressing against it. And Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. So that's the good news. It's part of the good news of the gospel. The the basic essential good news of the gospel is that Christ has died for our sins. And so I don't have to figure out a way to heaven. I don't have to think through how I can rationalize my life on the day of judgment when I have to give an account for the things I've done. But I can rest assured that Jesus has died on the cross for my sins And I have that to rest on. I have that to fall back on. You have that to fall back on. And if Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient for sins, you have nothing else to offer. 
And you would say, if, if Christ's death is not sufficient for me as, as one who has been a sinner, I have nothing else to give. God, I stand before you claiming the blood of Jesus Christ and his alone. That's the good news of the gospel. But part and parcel of the good news of the gospel is this whole beautiful idea that this same Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven, but is still working on earth through the church, through the Holy Spirit, still working on earth, and he is building his church. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. He is gathering together men and women from every corner of the world, the young and the old, people who look like us, people don't look anything like us, some who were raised in the faith, some who were raised in other faiths, some who were raised with no faith at all, some very, very common people like all of us, and some of the most impressive and intelligent people in the world. He is gathering these people. He is assembling them together. To him, he sees one church. We see lots of churches all over the place and collections of believers here, there, and everywhere else, and he sees one church, one body of Christ. It is his church. He is the head of the church. And praise the Lord, he is building his church. It's my privilege to talk a little bit today about the international scope of the mission of the church. We're talking a little bit about what the church is supposed to do. What's the endeavor of the church? What's the task of the church? What is this collection of believers supposed to be accomplishing? We're talking a little bit about that and we're applying it in a global sense. Uh, it can be applied locally and maybe Tab is going to talk to us about how it's applied locally next week. I think that was something that was really on his heart. Always important to think, well, what about the application of the mission of the church here right where we are? It's my opportunity to speak about how it applies cross-culturally and how it applies internationally and globally and what God is doing and just uh, the, the, the blessing and the wonderful thing that God is doing. So there are really five commission passages in the New Testament. The Great Commission is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus said, all authority is on heaven and earth is given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you forever, even until the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. And we go back to that again and again, and our hearts are warmed and refreshed by the Great Commission. But there are really five commission passages at the end of each one of the Gospels, there are four, and then at the beginning of the book of Acts, there's one. And if we really wanted to understand the mission of the church, we would put all of those things together and try to understand uh, God's will altogether. Today, we're looking at one of the five commission passages, and it is in the Gospel of John. So it's these verses which were read to us this morning. We're going to open our Bibles and take some time looking there. And what we're going to do is just basically find some observations about this mission of the church. This is going to be kind of a mission sermon today, whether I have to apologize for that or not, I don't know. Some people love mission sermons and some people don't. It's kind of a mission sermon, but this is not really a missions class. So we don't have time today to go into depth about all the things God is doing in the world. It might, might be nice to do that sometime, just to have a class at some other time, uh, have it interactive, show lots of slides, some videos, just discuss what God's doing in the world more in depth. But this, because of the nature of what we're doing today, this being a worship service, this is a case where we're going to, to go right to God's word and we're going to stick our nose into the book 
and we're going to see what we can see about this mission of the church. So let's look at John chapter 20, and I'm just going to make a couple of observations from the passage that was read this morning. Uh, these are just things that we're noticing about what Jesus has in mind for these disciples. The disciples represent the church in this passage. So you could say what Jesus has in mind for the church. What's the task? What's the, what's the job? What's the mission? What, what is the church sent to do? We're just going to make some, some simple observations, but apply these kind of in a global context. Look at them through the, the, the glasses of what God is doing internationally. And the first the observation that I want to make is about how it is that the church is sent. I want to say to you today that the church is sent as Jesus was sent. It's a remarkable statement, but it's really too true. It comes right out of the passage that we looked at. That the church is sent, and it is sent in the way, the manner in which Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent on a different mission than the church is sent on. We're not talking about the what of the mission yet. We'll talk about that, I think, in verse 23. But in verse 21 in our passage, it says something about the how. How is this church sent? And Jesus says something wonderful and beautiful. Pretty much just going to limit my comments to verses 21 to 23 this morning, so I won't really take time with all of those verses. But Jesus says something wonderful and beautiful in verse 21, where it says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So once again, we're thinking about how the second person of the Trinity is sent out by the first person of the Trinity and what that looks like. And then Jesus is saying in the same fashion, I am sending you. He is not sending them to do the same thing. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. The church is not called to do that. The church is called to do something else. Some of the things that we're called to do are, are the same as what Jesus did in terms of teaching and, and spreading the gospel and things like that. But primarily, the mission of Christ was to die on the cross for sins. That's not the mission of the church, so it's not the what, but it is the how. So then, what we want to try to get our, wrap our minds around a little bit is just the question of how did the Father send the Son? And I think that would be a question we could never exhaust, probably. My goodness, how did the Father send the Son? There are too many ways to answer that, but because I want to apply this in a global context and think about what the church is doing internationally today, I want to say that the Father sent the Son on a cross-cultural mission. And what I want to say is that the ministry of Jesus was more cross-cultural than any ministry ever, ever could possibly be. It's cross-cultural when somebody says, okay, I was raised in this country and, and, and I, I, I like the food of this country and I know how things work in this country and I speak this language, but there's something in my heart that's taking me out of this country and just like sending me to another place that's very, very different. I have to learn everything. I don't understand the language. I don't like the food. I don't know the people. I don't, but, but I feel that God is sending me to this place in, in his name. And so that's what I mean by cross-cultural. What I'm saying is I believe that the Father sent the Son on a cross-cultural mission. I think this can be missed when we think about the ministry of Jesus because we think how, of how it is that Jesus really 
spent all of his life on one little postage stamp of, of, of land, considering the entirety of the world. He was a Jewish man. He was born into a Jewish family. He lived all of his life among Jews, mostly in Galilee, also in Judea. He gathered disciples. All of his disciples were Jews. They all spoke the same, same language. They were all Galileans. Uh, Jesus never got onto a boat and crossed the seas to take his good news somewhere else. He was not a globetrotter. So we may not think of Jesus as being an example of a cross-cultural minister, but he is because he left heaven to come to earth. And there has never been a cross-cultural endeavor more dramatic than the second person of the Trinity leaving heaven and coming to earth. We cannot even imagine or express all of what that is. What I'm meaning to say, and let me say this bluntly, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, while he was still in heaven, he was not a Jew. God is not Jewish. God is the creator of all peoples. The people who look like me, the people who look very much different from me, the people who speak my language, the speak, people who speak very different languages than mine. And it's true that God did have a chosen people among all the peoples of the world, but God is not Jewish. And Jesus, when he was in heaven, did not wear those robes of Palestine that we sometimes see him apparently wearing still in heaven from some of the medieval art. We cannot even imagine what it would have been like to be God in heaven and then descend all the way to earth. That's the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation. And so I'm saying that the church is sent in the same way. What am I trying to say? The church is then sent cross-culturally. So this, the, the church has as part of its mission, part of its task, just this idea of leaving where you are and going to another place. Is everybody supposed to do that? No. Everybody's not supposed to do that. And sometimes when I'm talking about missions, I, I get so enthused about it. Some people get the idea that maybe I think that only missionaries are cool people and everybody else, you know, are, are no good. I don't, I don't think that. What I think is that Jesus is building his church. And some are called to stay, but some are called to go. So I think about this young man in Colorado. Mindy and I know his father. His, his father is a school principal. And so this young man grows up in Colorado, does really well in school, and just glides through an engineering program in college and guts, he gets himself in a position where he's going to have a good paying job and life is going to be good for him. His father was as proud as could be. And then the young man went on a short-term missions trip to the Philippines. Well, that's good. Uh, their, their church sent some kids to the Philippines. He went to the Philippines, spent a week or two. He comes back and he says, Dad, I've been called to be a missionary full-time to the Philippines. And his dad goes, hold, up, hold the phone here. It's honestly, his dad said, I tried to talk some sense into him. And this is a Christian man. But he's thinking, my, my son, I, he has this whole life ahead of him. He could, he could be an engineer. He could make a lot of money. He could do lots of, you know, son, you could do lots of good here for God as well. And that's really true. Yes, you can. But he said, Dad, no, no, no. I want to be a missionary to the Philippines. And so indeed... Uh, his dad had to allow him to do it. He said, now you've got some school debt, and you're going to have to pay off that school debt somehow. 
So he, pay, he worked just long enough to pay off the school debt. He raised uh, funding for him to go. He's been in the Philippines serving the poor for over 20 years, gladly and joyfully. It was a call of Jesus on his life. God sent him there. It's cross-cultural. It's about as cross-cultural as it, as it can be. Or I also think of a young couple known actually to several of us who are here today because it's Lizzie Lydell's brother and his wife, really cool California couple. Everybody would like them. Those of you who have met them uh, understand what I mean. Um, they have the whole world ahead of them. They can do anything they want to. Do you know what they're called to do? Do you know what they want to do? They want to go to Jamaica. They want to be missionaries in Jamaica. So then somebody has kind of, the wheels are turning, they kind of go, yeah, missionary in Jamaica. I could just see somebody sipping iced coffee on a yacht in the Kingston Harbor. How hard could that be? No, no, no. They're, they're going to Jamaica to serve among the very poorest people in Jamaica in a place where they don't have running water and the electricity is very spotty. And if you want to have a chicken for dinner, you're going to have to wring its neck and pluck the feathers and cook the thing. And they're not going for short term. They're going indefinitely. Why do people do this? It's because it's the cross-cultural nature of the mission of the church. Now, there's a wonderful application for all of us, and the application's already been made, but I want to repeat it because it's just too perfect. My heart was just stirred, and I bet yours was too, about, when was it, about a month ago or so, and the Sperrys and the Zellers got up and they talked about what they're doing with students on Friday nights right here in San Diego. Didn't you find yourself saying, yes, that's what the church is supposed to do? That's what the church is supposed to be. That's essential to being a, a church. Not everybody has to be involved in that. I don't mean you're a bad person if you don't do international students. But doesn't that just somehow ring true with you? That man, you know, I just praise God for what they're doing. And then this is opportunity that was given to us for having international students in our home. Mindy and I said, wow, that's great. Of course we'll do that. Everybody will do that. Why wouldn't somebody do that? It's just, it's just the sense that you have inside of you that when you are in Christ, that it's not like everybody has to be just like you and they, they speak your language and they drive the kind of car you do, and, but, but that you're involved in this international movement of what God is doing. I find it to be very, very exciting. To me, it's just thrilling, and I hope that it's thrilling for you. So that's one observation that we can make. I want to make another observation from the, this passage that we looked at today. In this case, I want to look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, and when he had said this, what did he say? He said, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the church then is equipped with the Holy Spirit. The church has the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is working in the church to allow the church to do what Jesus is commissioning them to do. We don't get the actual details of the commission until verse 23. But we have the Holy Spirit working in us to do what he wants us to do. I think that sometimes maybe we haven't appreciated fully the role of the Holy Spirit, especially in a cross-cultural context. Again, I'm, I'm thinking globally today, 
I'm thinking about international ministries. I'm thinking about cross-cultural. And I'm thinking about the many ways in Scripture where the Holy Spirit does his, mo his most profound work in a cross-cultural context. Uh, I'm not going to take time to walk through the book of Acts today, but let me just give you a couple of chapters. You can write these down and look these up later if, if you're not sure if I'm, if I'm telling you the truth. But probably in the book of Acts, the most dynamic, amazing place that we see the work of the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 2. The disciples are gathered together. There's this, it's after the, after the resurrection. The disciples are gathered together. There's this sound of this mighty rushing wind in the house where they're gathered. And there is a physical manifestation. Very unusual, but it says tongues of fire were upon each one of their heads. Well, this mighty rushing wind then causes all of these people to gather because they hear it. It must be some kind of a commotion. And it says men were in Jerusalem at that time from all over the place. In Acts chapter 2, it mentions some of the many different places they were coming from. Cappadocia and Persia, the Medes, Galatia, from all of these different places. They were gathered in Jerusalem and they were hearing this. They were all Jews, and that's important because of what I want to say next. They were all Jews, but they were people coming from other places where there were other cultures and they spoke different languages. They would have known some Hebrew, but they would have, their, their first tongue would have been other languages. And they say, my goodness, what's happening here? These people are speaking, but each one of us is hearing it in our own language. And as we read this, we understand that this is the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. And I think, isn't that amazing that it happens in a cross-cultural context? We see this Holy Spirit being so powerful, and we see it when it's happening, when the gospel is being spread cross-culturally. Another example would be in Acts chapter 10. Peter, one of the disciples, is commissioned to go to the house of Cornelius and share the gospel with him. Okay, shouldn't be any problem. But it is a problem. It's a huge problem. Because whereas in Acts chapter 2, the people from other cultures who are gathered around are all Jews, Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a good man. He was a worshiper of the true God, which means he probably would come to the temple or the synagogue and he would sit outside. He would hear the word of the Lord. He believed the word of the Lord, but he himself actually had not become a Jew. He probably still ate, probably didn't eat kosher food. He probably still ate food that wasn't, wasn't kosher. And so he was outside of the circle. And so Peter was told, go share the gospel with Cornelius, and Peter resisted. And why did Peter resist? Because he, Peter couldn't imagine that the gospel could apply to somebody who was non-Jewish. And so, timidly, Peter goes over there and he starts to explain the gospel to this Cornelius. And some of the very same things happen in chapter 10 as happen in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon everyone present in chapter 10 in a powerful way as it happened in chapter 2. Again, it's a cross-cultural context. And just one other brief thing just to throw out there. The book of Acts is full of these things. Beginning of Acts chapter 13. And there's a group of people gathered together in a church called Antioch. They're fasting and they're praying. Very specifically. Very specifically, the text says, 
And the Holy Spirit said to them, it doesn't say that the Lord said to them, it doesn't say the Spirit of Jesus said to them, all of that would be true, and it's, yes, essentially the same thing, but the text says, the Holy Spirit said to them, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And as far as we understand it, that's the beginning of the missionary movement of the church. So the Holy Spirit is there when the Holy Spirit is saying, go out from where you are and go to lands which haven't received the gospel yet. And then gets into the whole story of how Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles, to one Gentile group after another Gentile group, and it's an explosive and wonderful story. The Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit is involved in all of that. So would there be an application for you or me? Well, maybe we're not called to international missions, and I, I keep saying that's okay. I keep saying I understand that everybody's supposed to be a, 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 an overseas missionary. Mindy and I work for a missions organization. We've never been overseas missionaries. Doesn't mean we're bad people. But what, but what is the application for us? The application could be this. How do you know whether or not God is calling you to serve in a cross-cultural context? How would you know? I wonder if you would be willing to put yourself in a position where God could speak to you very clearly. Put yourself per perhaps in a like a missions boot camp experience. A place where you go for a week or for longer, do missions work, study what God is doing internationally around the world, study the scriptures day and night, pray like crazy, and see whether or not you hear God calling you to serve as a missionary. That's the way that the Holy Spirit works. He speaks to us in a place like that. I think sometimes we can block the, the ministry of the Spirit by surrounding ourselves with so many other things, the cares of this world and the, the pleasures of this world and so forth, that sometimes maybe we block out the message from God and we don't hear that. But I wonder if you would put yourself in a position like that. Or even more simply, I wonder if you would be willing to talk to a Muhammad or Amar Suedo or Mazkin, somebody who maybe lives in your neighborhood, or maybe somebody who has a son who goes to the same school your son goes to, and I wonder if you would be willing to sit down with him and say with 100% integrity, and friends, you cannot lie about something like this, 100% integrity. You know, I really don't know very much about Islam, and I would like to know, what do you believe and how do you practice your religion? I'm just saying that if it seems to you that the Holy Spirit doesn't really have a very profound place in your life, in circumstances like that, you might find yourself filled with the Spirit in a remarkable and wonderful way. And you might, and you might hear that person saying to you, yes, and I don't know very much about Christianity. What do you believe? Mindy and I had a chance to be in a mosque in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, what was it, just a week or two ago, and we were in a large gathering of some, some of us who were Christians on our team and, and others who were very devout members of the local mosque. And one of those members of the mosque asked Mindy, well, what, you, what, what do you believe? What, what kinds of things are important to you as a Christian? And so here we are in a mosque in Dearborn, Michigan, and Mindy's quoting John 3.16. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that great? So I, I think you could ask her, did you feel filled with the, the Spirit of God in that moment? I think she might say, yeah, I mean, that's really cool.
We didn't see a revival break out. But the thing is, we're putting ourselves in the position where we are experiencing the, the, the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about verse 23. I want to talk about this very briefly, if I can. If I can. One more thing that we need to say or we need to observe about the mission of the church. It has to do with verse 23. Verse 23 is kind of one of those verses which, if you're an evangelical, you say, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's that say? And verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Oh, my goodness. We who are Protestants would say, wow, only God can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But this says if you forgive the sin, sins of any, they are forgiven. And what I think the observation is for this is that the mission of the church is remission. What I mean to say is that the what of the church, I've talked about that, the how of the mission, or the, the what of the mission. What is the what? The what of the mission is nothing less than the remission of sins. The thing that is standing between sinful mankind, and we are doomed as sinful mankind, and a holy God, the thing that is standing between us is the weight of our sins. And you may be the best person in this room. You may be the best person on planet Earth, but I'm telling you, the weight of your sins stands between you and a holy God. Accept that. Christ has died for our sins. Hallelujah. And so we can stand before a holy God and say, if Jesus' blood on the cross is not sufficient for my sins, I don't bring anything else. Doesn't matter to God if you're an American doesn't matter if you vote doesn't 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 matter if you paid your taxes on time oh no I, I i look to the blood of jesus christ and so that is a message then we proclaim to others so i know how direct and frank this verse is if we were to take every verse on forgiveness in the bible and pile them up it would reach the ceiling and i feel sure that if we examine those verses as a whole and ask, what does the Bible teach about who forgives sins? We would see that God alone forgives sins. We would see that. So what is the urgency of this? The urgency of this, I think, is this. How had it been for the 12 disciples up to this point? How had it been for them? They had been, strictly speaking, followers. Jesus honestly did all the work. I know there were times he sent them out on training missions two by two. But the truth is, the disciples just followed the Lord around and they gawked at everything he did. He opened the eyes of the man born blind. Did you see what he did with the fishes and the loaves? He kept dividing them and passing them out and everybody was fed. And what's the job of the disciples? Just follow and do what the Lord tells you to do. Today we're going to Capernaum, fine. Tomorrow we're going to Samaria. Well, I don't really like Samaria, but if that's where we're going, that's where we're going. Day after that, we might be going out by the Jordan. Fine. Okay, we just follow. It, it is as if up to this point, Jesus was doing fine by doing all the work all by himself. It, it, it would have appealed, it would have felt that way to the disciples. And so now Jesus is saying to them, if you forgive the sins of any 
they are forgiven. Oh, Jesus, aren't you going to go before us and do all the forgiving of sins? Jesus is ascending to heaven. The Holy Spirit is given to the church. The church is left with a responsibility. The exciting part of it is, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. The difficult part of it is, if you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. So you go to a place where there is no church. You go to a place where there are no believers, and nobody hears the, go- hears the gospel, and you are in a position to forgive the sins of any who believe. But if the church, I'm not, I'm not seeking to blame any individual or any, any, any organization on earth, but if the church refuses to go to those places, then the sins of the people in those places are not forgiven. Forgiveness is withheld. And sadly, 40% of the world's population live in places where there is no Bible, there is no church, there are no believers. If they wanted to meet Jesus, the Son of God, they wouldn't know where to go, they wouldn't know what book to read, they wouldn't know who to ask. The gospel has never come. 40% of the world's population. I I feel there's a sense of responsibility for us. Quick story from the history of missions. About 200 years ago, a little over 200 years ago, a man by the name of William Carey, a young man, went to the leaders of his church. And he said, I have a burden for the heathen. And in those days, the term heathen would mean those people who are among what we would call the 40% today. There's no churches. These would be places in the world where the church hadn't gone to, the gospel hadn't gone to. William Carey goes to the leaders of his church, and he says, I have a burden for the heathen. He begins expounding upon what the scripture says about reaching the lost, and shouldn't we be going to these places and so forth. And sadly, an older minister told him, young man, sit down. He said, you were an enthusiast, and that wasn't a compliment. Young man, you are an enthusiast. If God wishes to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. Those are words that were actually spoken to a man whose heart was burning to take the gospel to other lands. But it's not true. It is not true. The truth is, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withheld, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Mindy and I in June had an opportunity to spend a little extra quality time with, with the group that we were in with Andrew and Noreen Brunson. Andrew Brunson was a pastor who had been in prison for two years in Turkey. He was arrested and charged with espionage. It was kind of funny listening to many of the things that he said. He said, I wish they would have arrested me and charged me with preaching the gospel. That's what I was doing. Why did they charge me with espionage? That didn't even make any sense. They were trying to make it look like he was a spy and he was trying to bring down the Turkish government and they kept threatening him with life imprisonment. For two years, he didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring. He didn't think he was going to have his head cut off, but for two years... They kept on telling him, you will never get out of this prison. We're going to convict you of crimes that will leave you in this prison the rest of your life. 
pretty, it was pretty hard. And we thank God that Andrew Brunson is free today. But let me tell you a little story about what he said. About 10 years ago, he said that he and his wife, Noreen, in their prayers, sensed that God was saying to them, prepare for harvest. And this happened over and over again, enough that they really believed that it was a word from the Holy Spirit for them, prepare for harvest. Then, actually, things got worse in their church. They were doing church planting in Turkey, and things were actually going pretty well up to that point. And then there was infighting, and people were complaining, and people were leaving the church, and they found themselves saying, what kind of a harvest is this? And then the imprisonment happened. Now that Andrew is out of prison, we're seeing that there's a possibility that if this was a word that God gave to Andrew and Noreen Brunson, that it may not have been just applying to a church in Turkey, but it much, might have much bigger scope than that because there's a Wheaton College historian who says that probably there hasn't been a worldwide focused sense of urgency of prayer for nearly a hundred years like this focused sense of urgency that we had for praying for Andrew Brunson to get out of prison. This became a worldwide prayer. And so now Andrew is free and he has an opportunity to go around speaking to people and he's passing along this message, prepare for harvest. Maybe it is not just a word that was for Andrew and Noreen. Maybe it was not just a word for a church in Turkey. Maybe it is a word for the church as a whole. Am I, am I introducing extra biblical content? No, I am not. Of course not. And I am not because this is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. Right. It's the same thing. Right. And so for any generation, for any group, for any, for any group of people, it would be always the right thing to say, friends, let's prepare for harvest. Maybe it would be great and, and dynamic and wonderful such as history has never seen. We don't know what it will be like. Maybe it will bring hardship. We don't know what it will be like. But friends, let's prepare for harvest. On that, I'd like to close in prayer. And our Heavenly Father, you are the, gar the God of the harvest. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for building your church.